0: And now, the conclusion. Hello, MIFV Max, and later on, kaiju lovers. This is Nate Marchand, host and curator of the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu, you know the spiel. You might be wondering... Nate, why has it taken you so long to get to episode 7 of Monarch Legacy of Monsters? Well, there's a very simple explanation for that. (laughs) Yes, Jimmy, I haven't necessarily felt well the last couple of days, but it's also because it's Christmas, dang it. And I had family flown in, to visit me while I was here on the island. I would have preferred going to visit them back in Indiana, but I have some loose ends that I need to tie up here. I got to still do some work to make sure everything gets all tidied up, you know, because we got a lot of big things happening in the new year. So regardless, they were here. I was doing some Christmas stuff with them. And, you know, I had some work to ta- other work to take care of. So it took me a little bit to get to this. And let me tell you, it's hard enough getting Christmas Day off with the board. Jeez, if you thought Ebenezer Scrooge was hard to deal with, try handling them. You know, at this point, I'm not too worried about it because I know a really good lawyer. I think my contract's getting renewed. Most likely, anyway. All right. But we need to get into this episode of Monarch. So, as I mentioned in the previous episode, I went into this with a bit of trepidation. Because this was written by Marco Tamako. I hope I said that right. Let me bring up... Excuse me. Like I said, I'm still dealing with a little bit of a cold or whatever. I'm sure I caught it from some obnoxious kid who came to visit the island. But anyway, let me see here. I think it's Marco Tamaki, if I remember correctly. So, like I said, wasn't necessarily looking forward to this because she has a reputation. She has a track record. And I am happy to say that it wasn't exactly as bad as i thought it would be i wouldn't necessarily say the episode itself was bad but it does end up falling into a bit of the same trap that we had before with this on the other hand there were some big revelations in this in terms of the show and a bit with the monsterverse at large which we will get into, I know Jimmy has some opinions about one aspect of this. I know you're not a big fan of him, but don't give it away, okay? Spoiler warning, okay? Okay, okay. Let's get into this, shall we? All right, so first off, I'm going to say, I called it, Tim is not dead. He has main character immunity. He pulls himself out of the dirt at the beginning of this episode from the helicopter attack, and apparently he's the only one who survives. I did suspect this is the title of the episode. I should mention is Will the real May please stand up? Please stand up? Please stand up? No, it it's really just Will the real May please stand up? I just threw in the little Eminem reference for you there because it's one of only a few Eminem references I can make. That. Song had nothing to do with Godzilla. Jeez. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. So she's acting kind of sick. She's in a bathroom, and then somebody comes into the uh, into the bathroom to get her, and she has this nice little one liner here where she says, "I've never been kidnapped before. How does this work?" That's that's a nice one. All right, nice shop <laughs> show. And then what's funny is Kentaro and Kate come in and. This just made me laugh because it felt like a comedic understatement where she says, I'm sorry I told you to go to hell. (laughs) Understatement of the day, I have to say. And then we get another flashback. This show and its flashbacks. This is starting to get to lost levels with its flashbacks, except it's all over the place here. Now we're getting a flashback to three years ago in Seattle. Oh, boyser. And this is, as I was suspicious, it's a May-centered episode, and we get to see more of her proper backstory, and it's the backstory that's not attached to Kentaro. We get to see what she was doing before she was in Tokyo. And then we find out, oh, Monarch is not about killing people. Well, that's basically what I've always thought. And then they really hype up the fact that when Monarch was founded, it was... Basically, it's supposed to be all about the science, which, you know, is what we know for sure. And then there's some big things that happen for Monarch in this that kind of fill in some gaps for the MonsterVerse, but we'll get to those. All right. And then, you know, okay, yeah, we get it. Yeah, Dad's trying to prevent the next G-Day. We've kind of already known that. Poor Tim comes into this airport that's you know over in, oh, it's in Africa, and he's just guzzling bottled water just buying practically buckets of it and just guzzling it down because he's trying to stay hydrated and he has a nice conversation with kate and kantaro and clear some things up that's nice and let's see wait monarch isn't it didn't take may yeah i thought it was monarch who did but we're introduced to a third party in this it turns out it is actually may's former employer a technological firm That, let me see, I wrote it down, A-E-T. Okay, so we have that to deal with. That's who really kidnapped her because they have an axe to grind with her. Not literally, but they have an axe to grind. And then we're also introduced to another outpost. This is Outpost 88, which is in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is kind of cool. I'm a little worried that at some point they're going to forget that Outpost 83 is, is on Algasawara. Or they're going to change the name or something later. But we'll find out. And then we find out that what Shaw's full name is. And this was just kind of wacky. His full name is Colonel. That's not his full name. That's not his first name. Yes, I know. It's a joke in Catch-22, but whatever. All right. So Colonel Leland Lafayette Shaw the Third. I know, right? He is competing with WHG3 for most pretentious sounding name. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure he's listening over at the Brasserie right now, and I don't really care. Anyway, so uh, it did make me wonder, is that why he quote-unquote looks young? Because he's a third? He's not the original? Maybe he's a son? I don't know. But then we find out, and this isn't... This wasn't too big of a surprise, but it's still a revelation. May, that's not her real name. That's an alias. Her real name is Korra. I had a friend who made connections to Legend of Korra for reasons that we'll get into. But yeah, her real name is Korra. I'm not surprised by that. I figured it might be a, an alias. And then we get some more flashbacks with her at AET where she's told she was courted, basically by the CEO the female CEO wined and dined her to recruit her to work for this firm and we find out that she's incredibly talented okay we knew that and but we also find out that she has a bit of an ego she seems to think that because she's talented, she can just jump to the top and she's told by the female CEO no you can't do that what are you talking about Just because you're good at this doesn't mean you can just jump to the top. And I thought, wow, that goes against the grain a bit for this screenwriter. Nice job, Miss Tamaki. All right, I'll give credit where credit is due. And then we jump back to the quote-unquote, you know, to 2015, and and Shaw, what I haven't mentioned is that Shaw has taken over Outpost 88. And there's a... Another Monarch woman there who just happened to be out of the room when it was taken over, which was kind of funny. And she's freaking out, trying to call Monarch, and she's reporting on what's going on. We're not entirely sure what Shaw is doing at this point. And they go into this big hangar, and there's a bunch of explosives. And they ask him how much should they take, and he says, take all of it. And I'm thinking, what do you have planned? Which we do find out by the end of this episode. You know, I, I did. I wrote in here. It's like, I smell spy movie shenanigans incoming, and we didn't quite get that. And then, this was funny. This was kind of funny. But Tim, Kentaro, and May go and they meet Cora. I don't know if I should say Cora or May, because by the end of the episode, she tells our other two main characters to keep calling her May, even though her real name's Cora, but whatever. And, you know, they. Try to come up with a cover to not reveal that they work for Monarch to try to get her family to tell them a bit about what was going on when she was working with AET and all that sort of stuff. And they try to... They come up with this lame excuse about how they met in Japan, which is to say they were part of an online manga club, and they named... Tried, they tried, Tim tries so hard. That's what I wrote down, you know, the spy shenanigans incoming, and it didn't quite go that way. But it was pretty funny, but it also showed that Tim is good at his job, even though he seems like a goofball. And they name-drop Akira Toriyama creative Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z, which is kind of funny. I'm not sure about any of the other references being accurate. But, you know, Tim's lead did work. He said, follow my lead. It rattled Cora's sister, which got her to drive away, and they went to a parking garage. But then she outwitted them by luring them to a parking garage and then trying to hit them with a tire iron. But then they had a nice conversation and, you know, resolved some things and then realized, okay, okay, we're not, you know, we're not trying to hurt anybody here. All right. Please bear with me. It's been a few days since I saw the episode. How dare you question my abilities as a podcaster? Anyway. Anyway. All right. So I've noticed at this point there are a lot of women in this episode, which is fine which is fine. I have no problem with that. And then we find out that AET took her, kidnapped May, because we have a scene where she's confronted by the CEO in 2015. We get another flashback that's even farther back that, no, that is after the previous one that we had seen, after she had already done the thing that got her in trouble, and she's telling her sister that she has to pack up and run away, which is odd. It makes sense thematically for sure with how everything is structured, but it's still weird that we jump ahead farther ahead in the flashback. Then we jump back to see what led to that point. It's really weird. It's a bit of an unorthodox structure to say the least. It's not linear for sure. And, but we find out that the reason that Aet is after her is because she sabotaged a project they were working on and, stole some information that they want back (laughs) and they make, they make a comment about how Cora was cocky enough to interfere with what they were doing. So this is where I wrote down in my notes, you know, these were some things that came to my mind because they were making a big deal about what this was. They weren't exactly explaining what this project entailed. So, I'm wondering, it's like, is there a reason for that? Is there a larger MonsterVerse reason that they're not bringing this up? Because I know how these things roll anymore. Because if it was something brand new to this show, they probably would have revealed it by now. So I wrote down, does this have anything to do with Mechagodzilla or the Orca? Those were the, given the timeline, with those being the two movies that happened after this, those were the two pieces of tech relevant to the MonsterVerse, I would think, is that what's going on here? We'll come back to that. Because then we see what she saw, which is that she saw chimps with these neural interface helmets that are monitoring their brain activity. That's what really triggered me to wonder what is going on here. They name-drop a guy named Walter, but then I don't know if they really explain what his deal was. Like I said, I'm just going through all of my bullet points here. And then... Tim call, you know, calls in a favor and base for more or less, and then gets a Titan Early Warning System in Seattle triggered, which throws a bunch of people into a panic. You know, it's something that Ed had been that he said had been set up in Seattle, but it wasn't fully implemented yet. That it had been done in Tokyo, it was just to cause them a distraction so they could get into the building, which ended up being kind of for naught anyway. And we find out that why companies like AET would be interested in titans like Godzilla, which is, this was really interesting to me, and I'm a little surprised that there, ha- as far as I know anyway, there haven't been any kaiju writers who have brought this up. I'm surprised I haven't heard more of the scientists here on the island bringing this up. I think that now that the that the show has brought this concept to the forefront again that some research might start being done on this now, which is they want to learn about Titan or Kaiju nervous systems. Oh, they can learn how to improve nervous systems, I should say, by studying how something as big as Godzilla can walk. And you know what? That is a very good point because somehow, somehow, Kaiju defy, the cube law, the cube square law, the square cube law. I think that's what it is. You might want to look that up, Jimmy. Okay, yeah, you do that. But I think it's the square cube law. But anyway, but anyway, that is their motivation for doing this. And I'm like, why hasn't anyone thought of this before? This is really interesting. Ah, it is the square cube law. Good, 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 good. I'm glad I got that right. Nice job with the on-the-fly fact-checking there, Jimmy. That's why we pay you the big bucks. Okay, big is a relative term. Anyway, at this point, I'm ref- I'm re- now referring to May by both Cora and May because nobody can really agree on what to call her anymore. And then she gets offered to be a spy for AET on Monarch. So, AET is aware of Monarch, which is interesting, because at this point, Monarch is, and they confirm it, Monarch is supposed to be operating in secret, but AET is aware of them. I'm getting the, I get the feeling it's probably because they've done business with them before, or they've had run-ins with them before, and it looks like the CEO of AET is going, yeah, is cutting a deal with Cora when she'd already been trying to cut a deal with Monarch, so she's is she a triple agent at this point? I don't know. And then someone makes a comment about how they need to bring Monarch out of the shadows. And that's why I said, yeah, and AET knows about them. And then our lady, I can't remember her name, but she's the head of, Duval, not Duval, but she's the head of Monarch, it seems. And they decide, well, now we have to come out of the shadows and... Well, we'll get to that here in a moment. Let's see where I have. uh, Oh, okay. I'm going to save that for later. I'm going to save that for later. Let's talk about coming out of the shadows because she makes a big speech here at the end where she basically explains, hey, we're monarch and we've been around for a while. We've been doing this stuff. And I think that is to account for the fact that when we go that in the 5 years between Godzilla 2014 and King of the Monsters 2019, it seems as though Monarch has become something of a public organization because they're in Congress making appeals to them when before they seem to be operating in secret. So this might be the show trying to tie a, uh, tie up a continuity hole, or fill in a continuity hole, which is nice. Some would argue that you shouldn't need extra extra material you know to you know supplementary material I should say to fill in stuff like that but I'm still appreciate it here and then and then we get to the part of where the part where I do think another misstep happened here it's not as bad as a couple episodes ago. <sighs> And maybe it's just a pet peeve of mine. I don't know. But it now suddenly seems like Kate and Cora slash May have a blossoming attraction. And I'm not saying that this wasn't set up. They've had some meaningful interactions in the previous episodes. But they've also hated each other, which makes this kind of strange to me. The forgiveness happened very quickly can't imagine that this is something that would typically happen but the other thing is we've never seen may slash cora behaving in this way before so i don't know if it's a blossoming attraction or if they're just suddenly really good friends i don't know at this point but are we to just assume because we've seen and we know from kantaro and in the flashbacks that they were in a relationship so are we just to assume that she's been by this whole time, or did she just discover she's by? Or did she switch teams? I'm a little confused here. And like I said, you know, it's not to say that, they, that these two characters haven't had meaningful interactions before, and that this could happen, but it still kind of came out of nowhere, a little bit out of left field. And you know, the episode ends with them getting kind of affectionate. No kissing or anything, but getting affectionate. And Kentaro's just kind of sitting there looking jealous. So I feel for Kentaro, I'm also a little disappointed that, I mean, I've seen a few people say that he got cucked, but I don't know if I want to go there quite yet because I'm assuming this is going to contribute to some drama, I'm hoping, in the next episode or before the end of the show. But like I said, it still kind of comes out of nowhere when these characters hated each other. it It just doesn't quite add up to me. And I said the same thing a few episodes ago about Kate and her being revealed to be a lesbian. It's just, I don't know. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. I'm not necessarily opposed to it. I just wish it had been more properly handled and set up because... This is, it's almost like the joke that people make. And I, I ran into this actually at a previous job before I came to the island where I had a coworker, a girl, who was an obnoxious, narcissistic idiot. And I butted heads with her constantly to the point where our coworkers thought that we secretly liked each other. And I said, I kept having to tell them, no, that only happens in bad movies and if we tried to date each other one of us is going to end up dead and it's not going to be me. And I feel like that unfortunate trope may have happened here as well. It, you know, or the there's also the joke that you know if you have two attractive people in a you know on screen together they have to fall in love. And here it's they're just applying it to two women. Maybe I don't know, I'm confused. I don't know. Maybe I missed something because I'm as straight as an a, as straight as they come. Some would call me "quote unquote" super straight, whatever. So maybe it's just not registering with me because I don't know what that looks like. Feel free to correct me. It's just still blindsided me a bit here, and I don't know what's going to come of it in the next few episodes. And like I said, I feel sorry for Kentaro. Okay. But then it looks like, I, I'm still not entirely sure where her loyalties are because she made good with her family after she had been gone for years. She says she can see them now and she's going to keep going on the the trip with them even though she said she didn't care about them before. She was in it for herself and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know if she's still doing stuff for Monarch, if she's being genuine, or if she's helping AET. But here's where we get the big revelation that I w- Uh, You know, that I called, but I wouldn't have called before watching this episode, which is we have the CEO of AET talking with somebody on the phone, and we don't hear the other person on the phone. And they're having a conversation where they're acting like they know things. This is where it's revealed that Cora slash May or whatever might still be working for them. And then we find out who she's actually talking to because she says goodbye to Mr. Simmons, and then suddenly the AET logo becomes Apex. Dun, 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 indeed, (laughs) Jimmy. So yeah, apparently what AET was doing becomes the forerunner to what we see with the Mecha Godzilla technology in Godzilla vs. Kong. So now the movie is borrowing from another Monsterverse film, even though it technically predates it. So nice work there, show. Nice work. I don't know how much more we're going to be seeing of Apex and Mr. Simmons. It'd be interesting if he showed up in the show. I'm sure that would drive a certain little gatekeeper I know crazy. But this tells me, I don't know if this means that Mechagodzilla had been in production a lot longer than we thought, or if this is just some of the technology that was applied to Mechagodzilla. There are some questions that this raises, but it does make sense to me that this sort of tech would have been worked on a lot longer than just King of the Monsters or whatnot. So... This is exciting stuff, I have to say. Plus, if I remember correctly, I do think that, I think, GVK takes place in about 2024 anyway. So, you know, they would have just been starting on this sort of stuff. You know, so it would have been pretty fresh technology. And then we also, by the end of the episode, find out what the heck Shaw is trying to do. And this is where we get really the only monster action in the episode, which I'm sure will disappoint some people. We get a brief appearance by the Frostvark, who's definitely not happy. He comes running at the uh, these helicopters at Shaw and Duval—I think, well, I think it's just Shaw—and some Monarch operatives are using. tries to knock the helicopters out of the out of the sky because they're using the explosives to blow up what I'm assuming is a portal to the to the Hollow Earth and then yeah and this is overlaid with monarch going public and then but the episode ends with this hole being filled not the best cliffhanger i don't know what consequences this is going to reap later unless the idea is that they're going to go around and do this with all of them or maybe this is a special one i'm not sure or maybe it's not even a portal to the hollow earth i don't know we'll find out i suppose in the next episode That is a good point. But next episode is called Birthright, and that should be out in the next couple of days. I will hopefully be able to see it once things slow down a little bit here and my family goes back to Indiana and all of that. Yes, Jimmy, please fly them back. They liked the trip that you gave them on the way here, so... Be nice to them on the, uh, so be nice when you take them back to Indiana. My parents have a very big yard, so you got plenty of room to land that big mecca. In the sense of you're kidding me. You're kidding me. Of course you ruined their lawn. Ugh. Ah. I'm going to have to talk with my parents, aren't I? Yeah, well, I guess you're not coming to our family Thanksgiving next year. Hello again, M-I-F-V-Max, and later on, kaiju lovers on the regular podcast feed, Nate Marchand, host and curator of the Monster Island Film Vault, and, as I said, film curator here on Monster Island, coming to you with some more Monarch Legacy of Monsters coverage. I just watched the episode last night. I would have immediately jumped at it, but you know I, I as i said in the previous episode i've been entertaining family for the holidays here and now we're just in that brief lull here on the island where things are slowing down a bit after christmas but they're gearing up like crazy for new years because you know christmas you got to understand this we're on Ogasawara still technically part of japan and while Christmas is a bigger deal for the non Japanese residents and staff here on the island and tourists as well, New Year's is the big deal for the Japanese. That is a massive, massive deal. Plus, in the midst of all of that, my friend Raymond and Gary over at the Monster Island legal action team are helping me out with some contract negotiations. So hopefully I will be able to continue working here. I would certainly hope so, given that I've already got an entire new season planned of the podcast. I Yes, I know you would like to remain employed here. But you would be totally cool going back to NASA? Of course you would. How are you going to explain your new alien girlfriend, though?
1: <laughs>
0: oh, your friends at NASA are all, have always been open-minded. Okay, I'm sure, I'm sure. Whatever, Jimmy, whatever. Anyway, we need to talk about episode eight of Monarch Birthright. Okay, some overall thoughts on this before I get too much into this. But I have been noticing a little bit of a trend the last few episodes and while I'm not necessarily bothered by it it's just gotten a little bit weird I I've noticed the last few episodes ever since we saw Godzilla a couple episodes ago the monster action has been pretty sparse I've been noticing and he, there was an episode before the one with Godzilla where there just really wasn't any. So, you know, for a show called Legacy of Monsters, I would expect there to be a little uh, some more monster action in it. And like I said, I'm not necessarily bothered by it, but I don't know, some might take that as not fulfilling promises here. Now, admittedly, The monsters definitely have a presence, especially Godzilla. He gets in this episode. He gets talked about a lot. Godzilla has massive repercussions on the plot in both the flashback and the "quote unquote" present day portions of the episode. And I have heard a few complaints about the show the the last couple of weeks. There are some people are kind of turning on it. They thought it started off really strong, but it hasn't quite kept up that level of quality since then and i understand that i've had some similar reactions so i i haven't completely fallen out of love with the show but the last handful of episodes second half or so of the episodes that have been released haven't been quite as strong and i do wonder if the lack of monsters is because they're you know, it was for budgetary reasons and given what I saw in that sec, you know, second half of season trailer, you know, mid-season trailer that came out, I'm wondering if they're trying to save their money as much as possible because they want to have a big, crazy finale with Godzilla. We'll have to wait and see on there. But last week's episode barely had a cameo from the Frostvark. Such a dumb name! I still can't get over that. He's a mole, <laughs> uh, and we get the Endoswarmer. At least that's what it's called on Wikipedia. Which, okay, admittedly, sounds pretty cool. You know, very scientificy. You know, an insect monster. Basically, the insect monster that we saw from the first episode in the '50s portion, but now it's all grown up and in 2015. But we'll get into that. We've got a fair amount to unpack here. So, as Luke Jackanetti says on Earth Destruction Directive, let's get into the notes. All right. So, we're back to the 50s. This is 1955, although there seems to be a bit of a discrepancy with... I found a continuity error. And it seems like such an obvious continuity error, unless I miss something. But... They mentioned something but you know, somebody mentions that two years ago, Castle Bravo happened, which would have been 1953, and if I remember correctly, that's inaccurate. Castle Bravo was supposed to be 1954, which would have been one year ago, but I'm going to do a little bit of live fact-checking just to be safe. Yes, 1954. So... Yeah, they're off on there. So I, I oh, who is this guy? The, the Lieutenant Hatch who's now in charge of Monarch in the 50s portion. Yeah, he's totally wrong. So that's a small error. I do, it doesn't really affect all that much because there are other plot points that are accomplished in that that the you know they got the numbering wrong on the time frame. I'm not all that worried about it. it doesn't hurt a whole lot. But the Kate and Kentaro, it's mentioned when we start that there is a kid and someone's babysitting him. So, you know, that was the first indication that, okay, the you know, that Kate and Kentaro's dad is around as a baby. So, you know, I'm wondering, oh, things have progressed in the relationship. And then turns out I wasn't quite right. And I should have seen this coming, and I'll understand. I'll explain what I mean there in a bit. And then we also, oh, well, this is a completely different flashback. This is not the scene. Sorry, <laughs> I wrote these notes last night, and I'm already forgetting them. That was, the, this was a different flashback. It was a personal flashback for Shaw, and it was done kind of in first person. And you have Billy, Billy Randa and Keiko talking and then Keiko turns around and it looks like she's looking at the camera, but it's a POV shot for Shaw, and she starts talking to him and they make mention of the of Keiko's son. And again, continuing to perpetuate the idea that Billy is the father and it even seemed like for a hot second and a couple of episodes implying that maybe Shaw's the dad. Which again we'll get there we will get there and then you know cuts that but then it cuts to shaw in a military vehicle in 2015 so there's a lot of parallelism that's going on here some really clever editing with how they switch back and forth using either similar camera angles or settings between the past and quote-unquote present portion of these episodes which i I have to say, the show does really well. If that is something that the show has done consistently well the entire series, and that is making sure that you're never confused about which time frame that you're in and finding clever ways to transition between the two of them. So, compliments there. So, yeah, I mentioned 1955. It was DC. We still haven't gone back This is just the note I wrote. We still haven't gone back to the cliffhanger, the seeming cliffhanger from the first episode from the 50s portion, which was in 1959. And and I was wondering, when are we going to go back to that? Well, we kind of do in this, but we'll we'll see. But in the same scene where I mentioned the other two years since Castle Bravo, the Red Scare is mentioned as being the bigger threat. So we got some historical accuracy there. Said, so, yeah, the, these monsters, potentially a problem, but oh, we killed the one, you know, we uh, we nuked Godzilla literally, so that's not a problem, and you know, now we got to worry. They don't specifically mention the Russians or the Soviets or anything, but they mention you know, enemy agents trying to infiltrate. I don't know why they don't just come out and say it, but I, I as a student of history, know what they're talking about. How? In the heck, did you spend time fighting Soviet interlopers? You don't want to talk about it. Of course you don't. There's a lot of things you don't want to talk about, man. Sometimes. Sometimes. See what I have to put up with people? Anyway. All right. So, then there's also something that is implied that Keiko has some sort of a skeleton in her closet. And I honestly thought they were trying to imply, especially with them talking about the war and everything, that it had something to do with her helping the imperial Japanese government or military or whatever during the war. And so the show fooled me there because it turns out to be something else. Spoiler warning. (laughs) And then... They mention, And then we go back to 2015, and I thought this was just kind of amusing because they said something about how William Miranda got into quote-unquote tinfoil hat stuff later after Keiko died. And I'm thinking, really? Given what we've seen of him in Kong Skull Island, it didn't seem like what he was talking about was, I mean, for most people, Outside of Monarch, I can see why that would be considered tinfoil hat stuff, but people inside of Monarch would know exactly what they're talking about. You know, it would seem normal, so I, I don't know. What in the heck is tinfoil hat stuff for people in Monarch? That just baffles me right there. <laughs> you thought tinfoil hats were fashionable for a brief time. Of course you did, Jimmy. <laughs> how old were you you know what i don't want to know okay we're, we're just gonna yeah okay okay and then this was just a strange line coming from the director for the monarch at this time I'm trying to remember her name uh, i did see it written here let me see verdugo yeah i think it's verdugo should be Verdugo. I'm trying to confirm. Do, 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 do. Yeah, Verdugo. So she says something about how Kate and Kate and Kentaro's bloodline gives them special insight. And I was like, how, what? Would it, was that supposed to be metaphorical? Because that just sounds weird to me. I, I don't understand what you're talking about there. Are they magically kaiju whispers or something? I don't just I like I said I don't get it. I'm just confused by that line. I don't. I'm assuming it's supposed to be metaphorical, which still seems a little strange to me. But we do seem to, at this point. I noted that we're starting to get resolution to the f- first fifties flashback cliffhanger by doing by resolving it in 2015, which is kind of interesting. The we go back to the fifties and the racism, or at least mild racism of the era toward Japanese people is called out, which I appreciated. Again, the show doesn't shy away from tackling such things and acknowledging that it was an unfortunate fact. Well, but it doesn't overplay it either. So it's true to the era for sure. And then <laughs> in the same scene, we have our primary trio there, you know, with Young Shaw Keiko and Billy, and they're having a conversation about all of this stuff and how they're upset with how things are going. And this is when Billy bemoans the the racism that we, they were getting from the fellow who was in charge. And then he gets so angry, he punch literally punches a hole in their makeshift office. And then what's funny is that we jump ahead to 2015 later, and the hole is still there. And there's this joke that resonates with all of us, I don't care who we are, where Tim is it Tim? Yes, Tim says that the hole was there when he inherit quote unquote inherited the office and just says, Welcome to government work. I uh, that was funny. And again, you know, it shows the parallelism that we have going on here. We're seeing consequences, even small consequences. With, uh, between each, uh, uh, between the past and the quote-unquote present, and apparently we find, you know we jump ahead later and they're talking to Verdugo and they're figuring out where stuff is because they're trying to figure out where where is he going next and where is Shaw going and then the, the you know the kids I call them kids when they're probably like twenty somethings but still you know they figure out oh wait. Yeah you know, cuz they're trying to figure out where everything is cuz they, you know, cuz they don't have the actual map with them anymore. And they realize he's going to Kazakhstan because they had read reports from that era about what had happened and you know, they read about, you know, they read the script for the first episode. And and realize that that's probably where he's going and it's like, "Well, if is Shah not sentimental." Well, you know, he's probably being sentimental about this. We find out that's not entirely true, but it is True, so we'll get to that. And then Verdugo mentions something about how Monarch can't operate in Kazakhstan, which I find really interesting. It starts begging questions about what exactly Monarch's jurisdiction is. because I, I don't think it's entirely an American organization. I think it's supposed to be an international organization. But why can't they go to Kazakhstan? That just seems strange to me. I don't know what exactly, I would love to know exactly why, but that's the kind of minutia that isn't entirely important. It's really just a setup so that, you know, you're not going to have, you're going to have the characters going there without the normal amount of resources that they would have. Because, so, because Verdugo says, well, I guess we're just going to send a small team, which is basically just going to amount to Tim and the kids. Again, I keep calling them kids. It's weird. All right, and and this is the thing. This is the thing that gets to me because she says, oh, always thought Goonies needed a sequel. Lady, where have you been? It had a sequel. I'm pulling a Jimmy here. I am like it had a sequel. I, I mean, I will confirm it right now, but I'm pretty sure there was a sequel. Come on. Wait, canceled sequels. What? Wait, there wasn't a sequel. I thought there was a sequel. Do, 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 do. Oh, maybe there was it. I must be thinking of something else. Sheesh. Uh, well, I stand corrected. Why didn't you do this for me, Jimmy? Because you're entertained by me making a fool of myself. Of course you are. Good Lord. Sometimes I wonder why I keep you around. I could have swore there was a Goonies 2. I really could have swore there was a Goonies Goonies 2. How could, I have, how could I have been wrong this whole time? No, oh, wait. Oh, that's why I'm thinking of it. It's because there's a video game called Goonies 2. That's what I'm thinking of. Well, dang. I Mandela affected that. Something fierce. And I haven't even played the dang game. Oh, well, moving on. I am amazed that there isn't a sequel. Now that I think about it. Anyway, that embarrassment aside, so yeah, again, I mentioned you know the parallelism. So the house bigger on the inside than the outside, and I kind of thought I, I've you know I've had Doctor Who on the brain a little bit lately. So I kind of wondered if that was a Doctor Who reference, and it's it's in a scene in the 50s portion. Where Billy and Keiko are looking at this map trying to make sense of it and she's talking about how it must have been made by a it's like a house made by a hundred architects and ninety nine of them are insane. And, you know, there's there's you know rooms without doors and you know and all of these things, stairway staircases to nowhere and it's bigger on the inside than the outside, blah, blah, blah. They can't make sense of it. And then that's where we get The first hints of their budding romance and attraction starting to blossom. And now Lee is, uh, you know, Shaw, young Shaw has become the third wheel because we see him watching the two of them just talk about science-y things. And I wonder if that's meant to parallel our 2015 trio, even though that's not brought up. The weirdness with, with Kate and May... You know, uh, uh, the, you know where you subtly find yourself wondering if they're tr- if they're supposed to be in a relationship. I, 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 it's not even brought up. I wondered if there were some moments where it's implied that Kentaro is harboring something with some of his interactions, at least subtly, with some of his interactions with the two of them. But this week's plot doesn't really al- didn't really allow for a lot of opportunities for interpersonal drama in the 2015 portion. So I don't know what's going on with that. And next week's episode, given this week's cliffhanger, I don't know if they're going to have time to, to, you know, to get into it anymore next time either. So I don't know what's going on there, but I do wonder if it's meant to parallel it. It's a strange way to parallel it, but you know, we'll get into that. You know, I, I'm sure before this whole thing is over with. Okay, and I love the fact that someone brings up the term monster nerds and and Tim says something about how he doesn't like the term monster nerds. I'm sorry, but we're all monster nerds around here and monster nerd is, I, uh, is a more flattering term than you would realize. I wonder if Tim forgot that nerd hasn't been an insult since the end of the 90s. Good Lord. But it still made me laugh a little bit, you know, so the, we now start, get to the part where we start to wonder what is Shaw actually trying to accomplish? And I saw some reviews related to the show, you know, the, especially last week's episode where it seemed like Shaw had subtly in one reviewer's mind had subtly turned into a supervillain, and it was wondering, so what is he even trying to accomplish? And we do find out what that is, and it's not all that surprising. It really isn't. This has been basically not implied. Well, I guess at least implied, if not more or less obvious. I don't know. I'm going week to week with this. So, you know, I mentioned that, you know, it can't just be purely sentimental. That would just seem strange to me, which we'll get into that here in a moment. And then, you know, they're, they're checking the radiation. And apparently, these titans aren't quite absorbing all of the radiation. You know, this place had a meltdown. And they said it's supposed to be uninhabitable for a thousand years. But we, they could actually walk around. And they said that it's, the, the radiation levels are equivalent to, an x-ray, to a chest x-ray an hour. Implying that something's absorbing the radiation. Which is a MonsterVerse thing. And then we start getting some buildup. Two, I will say this, even though the endo the Endoswarmer is barely in this episode, we do get some nice build-up to it. Is it worth the build-up? I, I guess the argument can be made that not really, but they start finding these molted insect skins all over the place. They crunch on them, and they're like, what the heck is that? And then they explain what it is, and they say, you know, why do insects molt? And it's basically because they outgrow their skins. So, you know, the idea being that, oh, this thing is huge. (laughs) And then they get to the hole that we saw. Well, no, I don't know if we saw... I don't think we did see it in in, uh, the first episode, but we get to the room where Keiko died. And we have this massive hole, this portal, and even though they don't say it this way... If you're a MonsterVerse fan, you know what it is. It's a gateway, one of the gateways, to the Hollow Earth. Because, you know, or and there's vegetation around it. I wonder if that was supposed to be part of this you know, beneficial radiation that's been talked about in pr- past MonsterVerse films. So, you know, but I wonder if it's also around there symbolically to indicate that, you know, this is a a pathway to a, you know, it's a life, you know, because the Hollow Earth is lush, as we've seen in Godzilla vs. Kong. The, although, hilariously, Tim calls it tinfoil hat land. Yeah. No, not that, Jimmy. Come on, that was, that was rim shot worthy right there. Hit the right button. Jeez. <sighs> you know, you're too distracted by your new girlfriend to remember things like that. Good Lord. Ugh. Anyway... Anyway, so I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be the Hollow Earth. It's all but confirmed. Oh, we also find out Duval's first name. Her name, first name is Michelle. It should be Monique, but you know, <laughs> it's Michelle. <laughs> I'm sure Duval and Monique hang out all the time. <laughs> you know, and they've had secret rendezvous at the Marco Light Lounge or at Nessie's Brasserie. You know, to get drinks and swap super spy stories. I'm sure. All right, and then we get basically the origin of the hollow earth theory right here, because we have ran. We see how Randa figures it out. Cause he's staring at that map and he realizes that the, the issue is that they're still only thinking that it's on the surface. It's actually underground, which is where all the monsters are coming from. And Keiko says that is crazy, but brilliant. I've been called crazy but brilliant on numerous occasions. No, we're not going there. Jeez. Anyway, you know, and I'm sure there have been a lot of scientists around here who have been called crazy but brilliant. Of course you've been called crazy but brilliant, but I think you're a little more crazy than brilliant most of the time, sir. All right. You know, so we we get the start of that. So that's a nice bit of MonsterVerse lore that gets developed here. And in the same scene, we hear the kid. And now, at first, I could have discounted that one other flashback as either being later, because it wasn't dated, the or just some sort of bizarre fantasy or whatever from Shaw. But then we hear a little voice at Keiko's house say, Mama! I'm like, uh-oh, it's the kid. So it's got to be the dad as a little kid. And then I'm thinking, wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on. This is when I. St- this is when things started freaking me out. I was like, wait, the kid's already been born, and the romance between Keiko and Rand, Billy Randa, has only just now started to develop. What is going on here? Then I actually wrote my notes. Wait, is Shaw their grandfather? I was waiting for that i really was waiting for that because we had already seen an attraction going on between them in the previous flashback which was before this uh, enough time which was enough time before this that something could have happened they could have had children or a child i should say so i'm like i said i'm freaking out a little bit here and then we find out what's really happening is she's a widow now they don't come out and say this, but given the fact that she says she's a widow, and she had to get passports and save up money, thanks to her job a monarch, you know, make all these arrangements to get the to get her son over here. She's although she uses plural pronouns there because she says them and there and things like that with you know, which is separate from the kid. So I'm wondering if there's other people who have been brought over as well. I'm not sure what's going on there, but for sure she brought him over here. And I su- the implication seems to be that he is 100% Japanese, which would make sense that because both Kentaro and Kate, despite having different mothers, are both 100% Japanese. You know, I am like, wait, if they're supposed to be at least partially Caucasian, I don't really see that here. You know, you would think that they would cast actors who, you know, were at least part white for that reason. But no, apparently their dad is some unknown dude who died. And it can't be a case of he died in the war or something because kids way too young for that way 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 too young so the, and we find out that she is the baggage that no not she the kid was the baggage that was mentioned at the beginning and that's called i was like what would you think it was you know, when billy and keiko are talking so that was quite a revelation there and then we go back to 2015 and at this point Shaw has revealed himself to the rest of the characters and said he wants, he says, I'm sure you want to talk. And he says, I'll talk, but only to Kate. And we find out in that conversation, you know, the reason he brings her in is because you looked into his eyes and you know what he's doing and you know what he's actually doing, you know, talking about Godzilla. And he mentions that he has been to the hollow earth. I'd like to know when I'm wondering if that's what happened after the, what, you know, the, Parts of the the 1959 flashback that we had in the first episode. Maybe he went down there for a while. That's my theory, anyway. And you know, it, she calls him out. she's so like, "Why are you doing what you're doing?" And he says that he's trying to help God, which he said before. He's trying to help Godzilla. Basically, he says, "I know Godzilla is not trying to hurt us. He's trying to keep everything in line." Thankfully, they don't talk about balance and all of that. You know, they use other terms. I'm like, I'm getting a little tired of hearing. Some of these words, it's almost cliche at this point, and so he says that he's going around trying to seal up these entrances to the Hollow Earth so that humans will stay on the surface and the Titans will stay underground, trying to keep the world separate, which is what God, he's basically he's saying is Godzilla is trying to do, so... You know, and, but the problem is is that case I'm like, but the data says that that's going you know that that's going to be detrimental and he says it's not about data, it's about belief. There's our line of the episode right there. It's not about data. it's about belief. It's not necessarily about facts. It's about faith. That's another way that you could put it. Now I would argue that you know, and this is a big debate in the Christian world, if I may, you know get on, you know, talk a little bit about my faith at this point, some people seem to think that religion and science can't coexist, that they're antithetical to each other, and I beg to di- I beg to differ.
1: Antithesis.
0: Yes, Jimmy, you and I have had a lot of conversations about this because you're not a religious man, but the- <laughs> but you know, they can coexist, and there are limitations to science. There are limitations to facts and some things have to be taken on faith. It's just how things are, and even some of the so-called facts of science that are so widely believed are honestly require just as much faith as anything in a religion, I would argue, and even something like atheism, logically speaking, requires a level of faith, even though the, the atheist would tell you that it doesn't, because to say without a shadow of a doubt, you know, 100% definitive that there is no God, that's just as difficult to prove as saying that there is a God. If you understand how these things work logically, so you know, there's a level of faith involved with atheism as well. But anyway, anyway, and he also says and a small degree of atonement, Which seems to imply that's, you know, which was a foreshadowing for something, which we'll get into that here in a second, which is, well, it's actually on my next note. For the next scene, we go back to the 50s and we find out, you know, he goes to the general, Young Shaw, goes to the general that we've seen in some previous episodes and says, hey, I want to talk to you about something. And he says, oh, I'm going to go talk to the vice president in two minutes. And because I'm that kind of a guy, I actually looked up who was vice president in 1955 because i don't know that as well as i do main presidents and to my surprise it was richard nixon isn't that kind of funny there's a i think there's a little bit of irony there given what happened with richard nixon later and i do think we get a glimpse of the quote-unquote vice president from a distance in a later shot and i do wonder if they at least tried to cast somebody as the vice president who looked like richard nixon at least from a distance it's it was blurry as well so i couldn't quite make it out but i'm like that's some nice attention to detail there i appreciate that but it's just interesting <laughs> knowing that you know it's the political it's it, you know but the political history of the united states is pretty you know interesting you know i keep saying that word all right and we basically get Shaw. I wrote down. I wrote it in my notes as he betrays Monarch, but I think it's more like he betrays both Keiko and Billy in this case because he reveals that Godzilla is in fact still alive, which you know was something that they didn't want to do because they thought that would just escalate the Cold War. Which the fact that they're talking about, yeah, you know, people complain about the MonsterVerse being. Kind of in their minds, well, double-minded about the whole nuclear thing, and I've always taken it as it, it's trying to say that it's complicated, which is a thing in the mon- in even the Japanese Godzilla films. But I'm not going to unpack that here. Go listen to my episode with the host of Up from the Depths and Ryan the Omniviewer Collins on Godzilla King and the Monsters, which I think is I think it's episode 37 somewhere around there. Go listen to that episode to get that unpacked. But the fact that they are worried about the presence of Kaiju, Titans, whatever, escalating the Cold War, you know, they have to build bigger bombs in order to stop these things, I I think that plays into a very classic Godzilla theme right there. But it helps that this is the height of the Cold War era, so it would make sense that that would be a concern. But anyway, he reveals that he's alive, which really takes the general aback. And now suddenly he's thinking to himself, at least from what you know what I'm seeing, he's thinking to himself, Oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? <laughs> what are we going to do? And now he's gotta change his priorities. So can you take that as a betrayal? I would say it's at least a personal betrayal. I don't know about a betrayal for Monarch, because I think he's doing it because he thinks it's what's best for Monarch, because no one's taking them seriously, because they think that their priorities need to be elsewhere. He needs to be dealing with the Soviets and not monsters. So, yeah, and then, yeah, he wants to... You know, Shaw, we go back to 2015, and he wants to seal off the... the. He wants to seal off the Titans, and he wants to make up make up for losing Keiko. That's something that Kate says Are you just trying to make up for losing cake and he says, yeah. And then he also says he wants to honor her and Billy's work. So it's a multifaceted motivation, you know? So he wants to do right by his friends. He's doing it to help the planet, save the world, more or less. But he also is doing it for very personal reasons. And then the endoswarmer shows up for maybe 30 seconds or so. Well, maybe 60 seconds. It's not very long. It's a memorable monster because this thing has like a Biollante maw that's just full of teeth, which is kind of horrifying. And then there's a, there's all this fighting and everything. And then the the Endoswarmer kind of gets killed by a falling rock, which is a little disappointing. But then the you know Shaw sets off all the charges, and they're screaming and falling and. People seemingly dying, and then they fall into the hole, and things blow up, and, you know, you know, it goes crazy in the last minute or so. And it looks like everyone has either fallen into the Hollow Earth portal, or everybody's been blowed up, which is a nice cliffhanger. It's a really nice cliffhanger. So, I'm curious to see what's going to happen in the next episode. I'm wondering if it's going to take place in the hollow earth, which would be kind of exciting. I'm hoping that they've got the budget in order to do that, you know, because that could be wild. The next episode is called Axis Mundi, which is a fancy sounding scientific term from what I have heard that I will unpack in the next episode. I know you know what it means because it is an astronomical term. So, got to say, some are I've heard some people are calling this boring, which I kind of get. I, you know, I, I wasn't bored while watching it. I'm reserving final judgment until the show is done. This wha, This has been better. This hasn't been the best episode of the show, but it hasn't been the worst either. I'm still trying to figure out it's like why were the some of the interpersonal developments from the last episode just kind of dropped here. I'm like, are we gonna follow up on it? I know there's which is kind of the problem with this is that these a lot of the interpersonal details just don't seem to mean anything anymore. You know, and then there's all of the it feels like manufactured controversy, nontroversy, as I like to say, over the whole presence of gay characters in this show so well at least one not sure if there's more at this point it's a little confusing I'm not sure well I guess we'll have to wait and see on that but yeah so I'm not getting involved necessarily in that because you know I think both as I said in the previous episode coverage that I think it's getting overblown by both sides but you know we'll wait and see we will wait and see. So, see you next week. Hello, MIFV Max, and later on, Kaiju lovers, Nate Marchand, coming to you with coverage of episode nine, Axis Mundi of Monarch Legacy of Monsters. Yeah. Yes, I know. For the first time, I am using the new headphones that you got me, Jimmy. Yes, please, please, when that new microphone comes in, please switch to that. Uh, Yeah. Especially since we got a lot of stuff going on right now. We have a new mission, I guess you could say. The powers that be have really shown how much they don't like me. No, no, I'm sticking with that. It's not how much faith they have in me. It's how much they don't like me. <inaudible> True, they don't like you much either. So, you know, whatever, whatever. The The Monster Island World Tour has gotten a little bit literal. We'll say that. <inaudible> that is a good point, Jimmy. We get to see the world. But still, <laughs> whatever. We've got a TV show to talk about here. But first... Before we get into what actually happens in this episode, because I had somebody tell me, it's like, oh, I'm really looking forward to what you have to say about this. Yes, I know, Mr. Reiner, (laughs) member of MIFV Max on Patreon. Yeah, I, I understand that. And after seeing the episode, I definitely understand why he wants to hear my opinions on this. However, I would be remiss if I didn't explain what the title of this episode meant now i will admit i will admit i didn't know right offhand. you know axis mundi i could kind of you know kind of put that together you know what that actually meant because i know enough about you know english etymologies and latin and greek and all that that i can that i was able to kind of piece it together but it's actually a lot more multifaceted than I originally thought. So, Axis Mundi, and I'm getting this from Wikipedia, full disclosure, and it, it like I said, it, it, it's got several meanings. In, according to Wikipedia, quote, in astronomy, Axis Mundi is the Latin term for the axis of Earth between the celestial poles, so the North Pole and the South Pole. Okay. That makes sense. That could apply to this, because this is an episode about going to, well, first and foremost, about going to the Hollow Earth. However, Wikipedia goes on to say, quote, "...in a geocentric coordinate system, this is the axis of rotation of the celestial sphere." Consequently, in ancient Greco-Roman astronomy, the axis mundi is the axis of rotation of the planetary spheres within the classical geocentric model of the cosmos. Geocentric meaning Earth-centered. Which was actually the prevailing theory, or the prevailing, not theory, but the prevailing school of thought until about, I think, about five 600 years ago. In most of the world, anyway. The idea being that the Earth is the center of the universe, or at the very least the center of the solar system. And then, thanks to astronomy, we found out it is, in fact, the sun that is the center of the solar system, which I believe is called heliocentric, if I remember correctly. Sure, Jimmy, correct me later if you need to. (laughs) But anyway, you know, so there's that aspect of it. I don't think that applies quite as much here. But again, it's the whole idea of the, of the Earth being on, uh, spinning on an axis, which is actually true. The you know the it, 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 let's go back to high school science here for a second. But you know the the axis of the Earth is tilted slightly, and it spins on that. All right, and but here's where I think we get to the part that is more applicable to the show. Quote, In 20th century comparative mythology, the term axis mundi, also called the cosmic axis, world axis, world pillar, center of the world, center of the world. Interesting, you know, when we're talking about the hollow earth here. Or world tree. Let me stop there for a second. For those of you who are either fans of the MCU or Marvel Comics but especially if you know your Norse mythology you might be familiar with the term Yggdrasil the world tree yeah that i found out just kind of doing some cursory research here that the, that the idea of a world tree is a little, is more common than you would think it's not just Norse mythology but anyway back to the wikipedia quotation so the term Axis Mundi has been greatly extended to refer to any mythological concept representing the connection between heaven and earth or, or the higher and lower realms. We have title! <laughs> that term is never used in the episode, interestingly, but this is definitely applicable. Heaven and earth, higher and lower realms, the surface world and the hollow earth. And it says that this term was popularized in the fifties, I might add. So that's definitely in line with the flashbacks that we've been focusing on primarily in this show by, and I hope I say his name, right. But Marcia Eliade, who was Romanian. And it also, Wikipedia also says that excess mundi closer resembles the mythological concept of what is this? Omtholos, um, or navel of the world of, or cosmos and then it gives you know it gives some examples of what this could look like because there's a lot of different ways that this can manifest it can be a tree it could be a mountain it could be a person a steeple smoke fire cross totem pole spire you know it, it, there's it, it, so it and it exists in both religious and non-religious uh, contexts It even says that a modern example of it, if you want to look at it this way, for what I was looking at here, you could even say something like an obelisk, a lighthouse, a rocket, or a skyscraper could be an Axis Mundi. I mean, I could spend an entire podcast talking about this. It might be something worth researching later. But just to to leave off on this, Mr. Eliade, there's a quotation here from him on Wikipedia about the subject where he says, quote, every microcosm, every inhabited region has a center. That is to say a place that is sacred above all. End quote. Again, like I said, I do think that applies here. And I think in this case, if we're talking about, you know, basically a bridge between the higher and lower realms here, obviously what we're talking about here are the portal Or the series of portals in the hall that lead to the hollow earth, and that's especially the case in the first scene of this episode. So let's get into the notes. Thanks, Luke, for that little phrase. All right, so we now the first thing we actually have is Shaw and billy talking with little hiroshi and he's got this toy and i'm really wondering if that is a real toy i kind of want to know what that toy is i didn't recognize it if anybody knows what that toy is please 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 let me know because i'm wondering if that is some sort of a reference all right and they're talking to him and they don't it doesn't come out immediately and say what year it is but they're talking to him as if his mother is dead. And I'm like, are we actually following up on the first fl- the flashback in the first episode? And I am happy to say, yes, this episode does. So this is in 1962. And we one of the setups that we get in this is we find out that Lee Shaw has a quote-unquote lucky pocket knife that he gives to Hiroshi. And I'm like, okay, that's going to come back later. And it does. It does. And it has Japanese engraved on it, which makes me think that there's a little bit more of a history to this than, we re- than I originally thought. And I'm also wondering, why haven't we seen this until now? So I'm a little disappointed we haven't seen this until now. That would have been a nice setup. Why is it appearing in this episode and not in the previous ones? Oh, well. And we're on a Monarch test site. Now, we don't know why uh, what they're doing here, and there's some nice banter in the interim between Billy and Shaw, which is really great. I've been hearing some people say that they find the flashback portions of the show to be more compelling than the quote-unquote present-day portions, and I generally would agree with them on this, and I think this scene in particular with these two characters is a great example of that. And then... They're walking around and there's the, the the Gamma Ray simulator, you know, the giant ball that we saw a few episodes ago and a ship with the Monarch logo on it and I'm like, "What are they doing? What is the giant ball?" It turns out, well, I already gave it away. It's a ship. And then we get the our general who, you know, has been you know, vacillated between his support and What's the opposite of support? I don't remember. Unsupportiveness of Monarch. And he's doing this whole exposition dump that's very well edited, I have to say, with all of the images that we're seeing here. But what's actually going on? And we find out that this is a ship. And while he says there are some people who are obsessed with space, but the moon's at least a decade away. And he mentions the president of like 1962. It's Kennedy. I do think Kennedy's get does get name dropped a little bit later, so I was that was confirmed for me. And they're saying like we're gonna go into underspace Like oh my gosh, under space instead of outer space. It's under space. Oh yeah, I know you cringed at that a little bit, Jimmy. Uh, maybe I'm just too much of a millennial, but uh, but that just sounded weird to me. It, it it sounds very 60s, though. I will say that it does sound very 60s, very 50s, 60s. Sort of say under space. I mean, there is a movie called Inner Space, so I guess it's it's not as weird as you might think. It just sounds strange, you know. And they say that basically, what they figured out, they figured out all the stuff. I guess this is how in GVK they know how to do what they need to do with the portals to the the Hollow Earth because they say we need to latch onto a Titan to actually get to the Hollow Earth, and you know so they use the gamma ray simulator to attract one and then they turn it off and then they drop it's you know it's literally a dropship, you know they drop it down and it falls and it's supposed to follow the Titan back to the Hollow Earth what annoyed me at first is we didn't get to see who, you know, what Titan it was. And maybe they were just trying to save on budget. I don't know, but I uh, was well, like, would have been nice to have actually seen that, you know, could it have been Godzilla or another Titan that we might've recognized now we do see it later. And it just looks like a Tyrannodon, a pterodactyl or whatever, not Rodan because he's hiding in a volcano, but still we actually get to see it, you know, later on. And it's, Nothing new, <laughs> nothing new, but then we get, a, you know, they, they do this and then we get a, a very strange reaction, you know, that I think really, you know, gets into the, this kind of hard sci-fi, but kind of fantastical at the same time, sort of style that the show is going for, but we basically have a magnetic storm. After this, with some really nice visuals, I have to say, because we see these antennas, and they start getting yanked toward the ground. They're bending. And then all the other metal objects, like the trailers and things that they're in, start getting pulled toward the hole. And, you know, there's this tornado-looking storm that comes up. And it's just all this craziness when they're passing through this passageway into the Hollow Earth. And then it all stops. And everyone just assumes that the crew is dead, which is understandable. And I mean, obviously we, as the audience know that at least Shaw is not dead, which I'm just thinking that must've just rocked poor little Hiroshi because he lost his mother. And then he lost uncle Lee. And now he's just stuck with Billy. And we fi- and then we find out later in the episode that this long series of tragedies, is what pushed Billy over the edge, so that you know, nearly ten years later, when he's John Goodman in Kong Skull Island, he's kind of zany. All righty then, makes sense. So good job filling in some of those details. Show. All right, and then I wrote. Meanwhile, in 2015, Cantaro is at the hospital, because so apparently he's the one person other than du- uh, Duval. Yeah, other than Duvall. Who survived? We see Duval for about five seconds in this. And one thing that I was concerned about when I saw this, because I haven't been entirely happy with how the show has been treating Kentaro, which is, you know, is he in the hospital? Is he going to be completely out of commission for the rest of the episode? Thankfully he was not, but I was wondering about that. And he's like, we got to do stuff. We got to do stuff. You know, what are we going to do? You know, he, he's, He's sitting. He's laying in this hospital bed with a broken leg, at the very least. I think a broken arm as well, because he's got his arm in a cast. And you know, they're like, you know what? The best thing you can do is just go on living. (laughs) And this starts this whole this whole trend in this episode where everyone talks about Kate, but we never see Kate, and we're just kind of led to believe Kate is dead. And I'm I'm like, I am too genre and I genre savvy and just story savvy to buy into this. Cause if she really was dead, you would have made a bigger deal about it. So I know she's not dead, but you know, we need the drama of everyone thinking she is and we'll get to that in a moment. (laughs) So, and then Katara's mother shows up and they have, and they have a nice little scene here where she comes over to see him. And then they'll have another really good one later, which I'll get to. And then we cut to the hollow earth and we have some really nice bit of cinematography where I'm not exactly sure how they did this, but they managed to film these actors in such a way that even though they are not moving, the way the background is, is is moving behind them, and I guess, and I suppose around them, it makes it look like something is dragging them around. Like they are laying on the ground and they're getting dragged around by something. And that was especially true when the first character we see is... Shaw, so Kurt Russell, and I really did think something was moving him around, like something found him. I didn't know what that was, whether it was a Titan or another person or whatever, but somebody found him, is dragging him around, but actually, no, it's not, that is not the case. It just looks like that because the filmmakers are trying to communicate how disorienting passing through this portal into the Hollow Earth is, which again, we saw in GVK, So they're trying to show just the after effects of that. So kudos to them for doing that. Some excellent cinematography there. But I do want to spend a few minutes here talking about this little corner of the hollow earth that we're seeing here. Obviously, this is a television series, and it's not going to have the budget of a film. I understand that. So I, I think I may have mentioned in the previous episode that I was concerned... What that, How that would look, you know, if you're used to the fantastical world, you know, this Vernian world, Edgar Ice Burroughs style world that we got in GVK. How are we supposed to get that here when we don't have the budget? Well, they did it in the tried and true TV way of doing things, which is go out and film in the woods and, you know, well, if this was the 90s. They would just film out in the woods and say, hey, this is the hollow earth. Well, I give them credit. They go the extra mile in this and they put in some VFX in post-production to make it look more ethereal, to make it look stranger. You know, some crazy colors in the sky and a, they put a filter on it that doesn't make it look dark necessarily. It looks kind of like it's dusk or dawn here in terms of light level, but they're They are adding in things to make it look at least a little bit strange. Now, it's not the, you know, the sea of floating rocks and everything in GVK, but still, they are making some effort to make it look at least a little bit ethereal, and there are some CGI insects floating around that don't look like normal insects. Like, one looks like like fireflies with a bunch of little lights on them instead of just one. So I give them credit for that. They, you know, they, put it, they do put in some effort. It's not like, well, this is just the first show that comes to mind. It's not like Stargate SG-1 where they would just go film in the woods of Canada and say, oh, this is another planet. Sure, guys. <laughs> planet Canada. They visit Planet Canada every week. But anyway, so I give them credit for that. I don't know where they filmed this. It's a nice forest, I have to say. It's a very thick, natural area. But anyway, so comment after commenting on that, you know, let me see. What's my next? Oh, the ground lightning, which is supposed to be another after effect of not it's it's not a phenomena of the hollow earth, which I thought was a little strange. It's actually a byproduct of passing through the portal, according to Shaw. And this all comes up because he finds May or what was her actual name? (laughs) because <laughs> apparently we're still got Cora. Apparently we're still just going to call her May. So fine, whatever. If the show's going to keep calling her May, then I guess I'll call her May. But there's this nice sequence where the two of them are trying to dodge this ground lightning, which I thought was actually pretty cool. Some nice colors and things like that. All right. And then we get another hint about, you know, Shaw was, you know, how Shaw visited the hollow earth and, I was correct in my theory about, you know, if visiting Hallworth is what's apparently kept him from aging. and I was right, but not quite in the way that I thought, which we'll get to here in a little bit. I thought it was just like he was stuck down there for a couple of decades and the environment there just slowed down his aging. It looked like it was something else. But then the end of the episode leads me to believe that my first assumption was was correct. So I, I don't know exactly what's going on. We'll find out here in a moment. And we we'll go back to the fifties, and there's a comment about how Monarch's being shut down again. I was like, why are you doing that? You know, when we're exploring space, and the general tells Billy, this is a conversation between the two of them. said, NASA understands space, but not the underground tunnel system. And I'm like, really? What? Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Yes, Jimmy. I know you agree with what the general's saying. Okay, calm down. All right, dude, just just, just calm down. Let, let the adults talk. All right, let the adults talk. You know, I'm going to cut you off right there because I don't want to start an argument right now. But I find it strange that they understand space better than this I, I mean it's far more terrestrial a lot easier I would think it would be a lot more a lot easier to understand but hey what do I know
1: <laughs>
0: yes I know you worked at NASA <laughs> and you get the mindset but you again we're not here to debate this uh, Jimmy we are not here to debate this all right I'm just saying I was a little baffled by that baffled by that now we do have a really good line here from the general that, you know, and I, you know, that I think is probably one of the best lines of the episode, which this episode was written, I might add, by Matt Fraction, who's one of the showrunners here, which I think is really nice. And he, the general said, quote, Older men declare war, but it is the youth who must fight and die, end quote. Which is definitely true. It is most definitely true. And it, it's being applied here because it's talking about how Brass like him make decisions about what to do with Monarch, while younger men, like Billy to a certain extent, and Shaw, they're the ones who end up paying the price for it if it goes wrong. But then here's the weird part. Young Shaw wakes up in a Japanese hospital, and then he flips out because he wants to see Billy Randa, and then (sighs) that poor nurse, that poor, poor nurse, he, he, he grabs a cord, wraps it around her neck, and basically uses her as a hostage. And then while he's walking around, he sees a space shuttle be launched on TV. Like, it's the 80s, isn't it? I mean, I was suspicious that it was the 80s. And then we saw the space shuttle. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. And so that told me I was right. And I'm thinking, okay, did he just reemerge 20 years later from the hollow Earth? Or is this time displacement? Yes, it is well documented that you hate time travel. We get it, all right? My gosh. Anytime there's time travel in anything, it triggers him. You see what I have to put up with? Anyway. However, the year does uh does not appear on screen until the end of the scene. And how does the scene end? Older Hiro a grown up Hiroshi shows up and says, I know who you are, Uncle Lee. And then he talks him down and, you know, and then we get the year and, you know, and then I just wrote down, cause there are several scenes that are like this in this episode. The, in this day and age, this seems to be less of a compliment anymore, but I appreciate that this show is willing to have multiple long scenes with where characters speak in a foreign language and it's nothing but subtitles because I know people are just weirdly averse to subtitles anymore, but you know, so I commend them for doing that. You know, but we live in a post-Lost world, because Lost did that a lot back, you know, back in the mid-2000s. So I guess it's a little less impressive anymore. And then we jump forward, and we have a nice little scene between Kentaro and his mother, and where she's trying to comfort him, and he's wrestling with regret because he says, I should have done more, I should have saved them. So I appreciate that even though it seemed like Kentaro was getting sidelined, we're finding out he wanted to do something, but he wasn't able to do something. And now he regrets that. And then we cut back to uh, to Monarch and a really obnoxious song starts playing. I'm like, this feels entirely out of place. This sounds like the, the stupid auto-tune pop music that is far too popular. <laughs> yes, I know. I'm an old man yelling at clouds at this point. Oh my
1: gosh. Mm.
0: But thankfully, it's. I think it's meant to be diegetic. It's. It, it is definitely diegetic. And then you know the 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 analyst girl that we saw we've seen for a few episodes takes her headphones off and it gets a lot quieter. And then she's like, "Hey, I see a pattern with the you know, with all the portals. Someone's trying to send us a message." And blah blah blah. All right. And then this is you know we go back to 1982 and we find out what actually happened to Shaw, at least as he remembers it, because he tells this to, you know, this is young Shaw talking to adult Hiroshi. And he basically says that the ship crashed. One crew member died as soon as they crashed. They were trying to do some recon. They were then attacked by Titans. And these are all Titans I don't recognize. And somebody got hit by the ground lightning. And we, we actually get, I was surprised to see this. Remember when this was like the hottest thing to do? We get bullet time. Yes, if you remember The Matrix, The Matrix got famous. The movie, The Matrix, got famous for doing this. But we have these bullet time sequences where people are, the crew members are getting hit by the ground lightning or attacked by monsters and all of that. So it's like a a 3D freeze frame. And it looks really cool here. I forgot how cool an effect this was but it's not nearly as popular to do anymore, obviously. And then it ends, so you know, Shaw's the only survivor, and then it ends with another portal opening up and sucking him into it, and then he wakes up in the woods, and then he's told he's by Hiroshi that he, he is found later. So, even though there isn't a whole lot of explanation here, and I don't know if we necessarily have to have everything explained, it's totally okay if we don't, but I'm assuming that the Hollow Earth being such a weird place that there was, you know, that another portal opened up and it went through time uh, instead of space, or in this case, time and space, and you know, it deposited him somewhere 20 years later. Unless we are to presume that time works differently in the Hollow Earth, which we haven't seen before. And I do think that what complicate matters, especially with what we saw in GVK and what I presume we will see in GXK in a few months. So I'm not entirely sure what to think of that, but you know this is the explanation that we've been given and I don't, I'll operate with it for now, but I wonder if there are more details that we just don't know. And I don't know if those are going to have to be filled in by fan theories or if the creators had explanations in mind, they're just choosing not to reveal them, or they just couldn't find a place to reveal them. Okay, so I was correct. It's basically temporal displacement in some form or another. And this is, I wrote this in my notes, but this is something I was thinking about before the episode started, which is, is the title Legacy of Monsters a reference to you know, the actual titans, the kaiju that we see. Not only that, but also a reference to the characters, that they are in some form or another monstrous. I mean, Billy was considered a madman in one form or another. And I, so far... Far, it hasn't seemed like that is what they're going with. You know, kind of like you know, The Walking Dead is not only a reference to the fact that there are zombies in it, but because these are "quote unquote" dead people. You know, they have issues that they have to work out. They are dead inside. So I don't know, because honestly, the characters in the flashback portions of these episodes have tended to be the more likable ones. So I, how I, I. I how can the quote-unquote monsters in the present-day portions leave a legacy at this point? I don't know. So maybe I'm overthinking it, or maybe I'm missing something. I'm not sure. But you know, then we find out that you know, even Hiroshi thinks that you know, what's going on with Uncle Lee is weird and that he might be a little crazy, and he says, we're going to send you to a retirement home, even though physically, anyway, he's not that old. And then we see him there. So we have Young Shaw, Wyatt. Russell sitting with a bunch of old people, drugging himself up, which is just, it is definitely pl- you know playing on the fear that people have of if I go to a nursing home, then I'm just going to end up in this you know, constant state of sedation, you know, it, which is you know not something I really like thinking about. And then we have somebody walk in front of the camera, and we have this. Cut this transition cut where it goes from Wyatt Russell to Kurt Russell, flashes forward, and you know, he's watching TV. But in, in, we go from him watching a nature documentary about macaques, if I remember correctly, to him saying, Oh, look, I've seen that movie, it's Godzilla 2014. So here's our Godzilla cameo for this episode <laughs> fighting a Muto. Cool. <laughs> you know and then he starts having this awakening i guess you could say where he's like oh oh it's godzilla i must i must do something and then presumably everything that we've been seeing kurt russell do (laughs) kurt russell lee shaw do for the entire show that's when he determined in his mind i need to do something and then dad hiroshi shows back up and talks to kentaro they have an argument and, you know, I, I appreciate Kentaro trying to be proactive and find stuff. He's still mourning the loss of Kate and May and everybody else. Kara, whatever you want to call her. Because it was the advice of his mother. It's like, you are allowed to feel. You know, and you should feel. I understand that. And, you know, after all of this stuff, you know, we have all this drama where Kentaro tells Hiroshi that Kate is dead you know, even though we find out, you know, spoiler warning, she's not. But, you know, to, as far as the characters know, she is. And then we finally, in the final scene of the episode, we see Kate, which is what I kind of predicted would happen, you know, and doing the same thing that the the, the, the show does, the same thing that it did with both Shaw and May slash Cora, where, you know, with the, the swirly, swirly, you know, thing with the, with the disorientation. She wakes up. And we get probably the longest monster scene in the episode where we get to see the most of it, which we have this kind of megafauna tree warthog hybrid thing. It, the, this entire thing reminded me of Kong Skull Island. So this thing comes up to her, she tries to hide, she sits still. I'm like, is, we're doing this like Jurassic Park, its vision is based on movement or whatever. And at first, it just walks up to her, snorts at her. And I do wonder, if, uh, unless that CGI is just that good, I do wonder if the close-up here where it comes right up to Kate, if that was actually practical. It looked really cool. And then it starts walking around this big old tree, and she thinks it's going away, but then it comes around the other side. And she tries to run. It starts chasing her. And then, bam! It gets hit in the side of the the face. I'm not sure if it was in the eye or not. If it was, that was impressive. Uh, By an arrow... And I'm like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Who has a bow and arrow here? Who has a bow and arrow here? Is Could it? Is this supposed to be Shaw and May slash Cora? That doesn't quite make sense, especially since Shaw had a gun. So why would they make a bow and arrow? And Shaw didn't fire the gun, so he still should have ammunition for it. And it's just like I'm, so, I'm just confused. Camera pan, and then the camera cuts. And it's Keiko. I burst out laughing when I saw that. It's a a nice twist. I was wondering if she was going to end up being truly dead or not. Especially with how much time they spent on her in the flashbacks. And how if this is the end of her story, it's a little anticlimactic. But at the same time, I was also thinking... Okay, she's. I don't know if they're going to bring her back or not. I was focused more on other things. So it was predictable and yet still surprising at the same time, if that makes any sense. Like I said, I'm just so genre and story savvy at this point that it's hard to surprise me. So I'm glad she's around. But the thing that's baffling is she doesn't look a day older than she was in the 50s. So now I'm wondering if my temporal displacement theory... About Shaw is even true anymore. I so I I have questions. I have questions. So I'm really curious what the finale next week is going to be like. (laughs) Oh, really? You've you think you've got it all figured out, (laughs) but you don't want to talk about it. You never want to talk about anything, Jimmy. Uh, It's just mm, what the heck, man. What the heck? All right. Well, hopefully the questions get answered next week. Now, if you'll excuse me, MIFV Max, and later on, the kaiju lovers, I have another podcast to go on about this episode. Stay tuned for details. Hello, MIFV Max, and one week from now... Kaiju lovers! <laughs> we finally made it! This two and a half month journey, all ten episodes of Monarch Legacy of Monsters season one? Maybe? Yeah, we don't know. Yes, I know they sequel baited. We'll get to that. <laughs> yes, we will get to that. I first want to start off by saying I'm a little bit annoyed that that Apple TV Plus continues to say they drop the episodes on Fridays and then they do it on Thursday night. While I appreciate it coming out early, Jimmy and I were a little too busy last night. Well, last night for United States, you know, we're in Ocasawara and all that fun stuff. We were a little too busy getting ready for, as you will soon find out, Kaiju lovers, the Monster Island World Tour. Yes, we've been sent on a board-mandated fetch quest. It was bad enough when I had to do it for WHG3. And now my bosses put it into the clauses of my contract. Yes, I am a little bit salty about that. <sighs> anyway, anyway, like I said, like I said, we were too busy last night making final preparations. Jimmy, you really got to switch to the new microphone. I, I I'm, it, It's got to be better than this. I mean, I, I appreciate the probe droid because I like Star Wars and all that fun stuff. But it, just because I can understand you, I can actually hear you. This is a misconception people have. I can actually hear him in his real voice speaking English, and so can the guests. It's just that when he goes out onto the air because of that stupid microphone, he sounds like a freaking robot to the point where people, including my real sister, Sarah, actually think he is literally a robot. Yes, I guess that means you do have the perfect girlfriend now, don't you? Because everyone thinks she's a robot. Oh, can can we can we move on can we please move on all right so episode 10 beyond logic gonna come out and say this was actually a pretty solid finale i have to say it wasn't a surprising finale necessarily but it did what it needed to do and i appreciate that and it finally paid off what we saw in the mid-season trailer with the fight between Godzilla and I presume that is the Ion Dragon, if I remember correctly. I'm actually going to do what I should have done before we started recording and actually bring up the wiki page for this, just to be safe, but I'm pretty sure that is the Ion Dragon. Oh, you're trying to beat me to it, Jimmy? Good luck with that. Haha, I got there first. Ha, take that. The Yes, the Ion Dragon. All right, because that was the one that was in the Philippines earlier this season. It also clears up some things that actually help it make a bit more sense. This is technically not the Hollow Earth. This is supposed to be a world between worlds, and we also get an explanation. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we also get an explanation from Keiko, who says that she named it Axis Mundi because it is the world between worlds, which makes the title of last week's episode make a bit more sense, although it does kind of take away from what I thought the title was referring to, but it could be a multifaceted title as well. It's a little strange that they use the title for something that you don't hear it name that in the actual episode. I don't want to call it an afterthought, but it's still a little strange. And so getting into the notes in order, as I usually do on here, I, one of the first things I notice when that first scene between Kate and Keiko is I got to give the casting director's credit. They do look alike. I am very willing to believe that they are related. However, I do find myself wondering how did Keiko learn to survive? She's gone full native here. Because she says she's been here for 57 days, which is interesting because time distortions and all that fun stuff. And she's done pretty well for herself, I would think. If you're going to survive for nearly two months from your perspective, dealing with monsters and things like that, and she knows how to string a makeshift bow and arrow and things like that, I'm kind of wondering where she learned how to do that. Might have been nice to know, know, but we'll go with it for now show and Kate tries to get around to having to tell her anything you know who she re- who she is and you know what you know what time she comes from that Billy is dead you know all that stuff I'm like you're gonna have to tell her eventually and she finds out just a few scenes later spoiler warning and then we have another scene between Hiroshi and the you know, and Kentaro And we find out, and this was kind of predictable, but Hiroshi was doing all he was doing to prove his parents' theory, and mostly because he thinks he's going to save the world by doing it. So it's all because he had to redeem his family legacy, which seems like a very Japanese thing to do, to be honest. And then we get to what I've heard some people say might be the best scene of the episode, if not the whole season, which is where our characters reunite in Axis Mundi. And, you know, the younger characters go and meet Keiko, no problem. And Lee Shaw, not to be confused with the chosen name of my pseudo-sister, because that's a name from... I think believe it was our, my grandmother's, not our, my grandmother's maiden name. But anyway, he doesn't want to meet her. Sure, there's a level of insecurity with that because he's older now and she doesn't look a, a, a day older than when he last saw her. And he, so he's hiding behind a tree and he's talking. And Keiko points out, "You sound different." She could tell. She could kind of tell it was a bitch. Like you sound different. And I'm like, yeah, because it's the wrong Russell. <laughs> it's a different Russell. <laughs> it's Kurt, not Wyatt. And eventually, he comes out and she sees him. And they start to explain to her everything that's been going, uh, that has been happening. She predictably has an emotional breakdown for a second over this. Obviously, she can't do it for long because she has to, you know, they have to figure out how to solve the problem that they're in right now. And also, unlike another MonsterVerse property that I tore to shreds earlier, well, not, not this year, last year, she, Keiko, doesn't get turned into a narcissistic wench. Because she had to harden herself to survive for a while. Just saying. Ugh. Yes. Yes. Uh, Sometimes I do enjoy, we'll keep it PG around here. I do enjoy tearing down Annie a little too much. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, I'm just, but I'm also thinking, man, she's dealing with a lot right now. Like her whole world just shatters, which comes back later because. She tries to tell them that she's not going to go. And then Kate, in what might be one of the best things that she's done the entire season, she talks some sense into her grandmother and says, You know what? You know what? These monsters have taken everything from me. I'm not letting them take you. We need your help. You're coming with us. Thank you. Thank you. We're not doing some weird noble sacrifice here where where someone just arbitrarily stays behind. Good. Good, good good and then the we get the only explanation as far as I know that we're going to get for all this hollow earth weirdness which is that the gravitational distortion warps space-time there which does make sense you start you know diving into theoretical physics and all of that and relativity and all and, and stuff like that and that is that is plausible it's still a very kind of Vernian, Burrosian, Burz, Burro, yeah Burrosian sort of Pellucidar kind of idea, though. But, you know, we can go with it. It does seem very inconsistent, I will say, because she lost 50 years in 57 days. 50 plus years in about 57 days. So it's almost like she lost a year per day. And we find out that Shaw was there for about a week and he lost 20 years. It's a little weird and inconsistent not sure what to make of that but uh, temporal anomalies are weird and unpredictable (laughs) yes we know this is why you hate time travel (sighs) sometimes sometimes jimmy i wonder if there was a level of temporal displacement in your convoluted backstory (laughs) Uh, of course you don't want to talk about it we're moving on Moving on. And then we get the first of what I think is a little bit of a running joke for the episode because we have two characters with injured legs. And first off, we have Tim and Verdona asks him, How, how's your leg? And he says, oh, it only hurts when I walk on it. Pretty. That's, that's a pretty good joke, guys. That's a, a pretty good joke. And then we get something that I'm glad happened, which is that Tim stands up to Verdona and basically says... We need to go save them. It's like, oh, we got a priority saving seven billion people. Yeah, but these three people could save the seven billion people. And you know, she basically says, You can just you can do what I say, or your medical leave can be extended indefinitely. Scene kind of ends there, but it it's pretty obvious what he's going to do. Come on. Anyone who's watching enough TV and movies or whatever knows how this is going to shake out. This is how this is going to shake out. And then we go back and we get another scene. And this is interesting. So even at this point, they are still not telling Keiko the entire truth because she asks about her son, Hiroshi. And Kate says that he was a family man. Which is, to pull a Star Wars, is true from a certain point of view. I mean, he had two families. So I guess he really, I mean, he was a, two times the family man. But uh, it's skirting it a little bit. I'm guessing they just don't want to overwhelm her with too much stuff right now, and I get it. But eventually, I'm assuming that's going to have to come out. Now we're spoiler warning: we're not going to see it because the plot keeps interrupting these things. But still, and then I, I we go back to Hiroshi and Kentaro, and I, I this is when I re, I pointed this out on the Monarch Files podcast, but. Because they were kind enough to invite me on for episode 9. But man, the actor playing Hiroshi. I'm going to look him up here really quick. But my gosh, does he look like Ken Watanabe. Uh, Takahiro Hira. Yeah, to the point where if you hadn't told me, I might have w- been willing to believe that was him or that they were related somehow. Uh, maybe they are. I mean, you know what? I'll, I'll double check that right now. We'll see. Are they related? Are they related? Nope, nope. Wrong actor. Wrong actor. Let's see. Nope. They do not appear to be related. That is unfortunate. Okay. Anyway, we're going back. So, the like I said, they have a nice, uh, nice little moment together, and I really... Uh, I mean, it was very dramatic and they kind of hate each other, but it's, you know, from a storytelling standpoint, it was done pretty well. And we find out that Kentaro's mom is named Emiko. I don't know if I brought that up before, and I'm wondering if that's a bit of an Easter egg for Godzilla 54. I don't know. But his mom makes a very good point, which, you know, because Hiroshi comes in to talk to them because he's trying to figure out where he's going to go and he's leaning toward leaving. And she says, doesn't matter what you did to me, but Kentaro deserves to have a relationship with his father, which I do think is a really interesting way to look at things. You know, she's basically saying, you know, there's nothing that can mend our relationship, but our son shouldn't have to suffer because of that. I like that. I like that. I think that's an attitude more people need to adopt. And I... Hmm. This is a point where we go back to uh, Access Monday, and I started wondering: uh, Does the audience feel as awkward seeing Kurt Russell, who's clearly about thirty years older than the actress playing Keiko? Who let me see? Keiko, Keiko, Keiko is played vamp, vamp, vampy, vamp, 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 vamp. Uh. To do Mari Yamamoto, yeah, that you know, about thirty years older than her. Is it you feel as awkward for the audience seeing that as it does, you know, her seeing him that old? I was wondering about that. I'm sure it is. <laughs> I'm sure it is. And it was at this point I, I I realized we're not getting flashbacks. This is the first time in the entire run of the show we're not getting flashbacks, although. Again, as Obi-Wan would say, from a certain point of view, you're welcome. You could argue that we still did, but we'll get there. We will get there. But I also just noted, there are concepts in this episode and kind of in the whole show that could be entire stories unto uh, unto themselves. All all the stuff with the time distortion and surviving in this you know, world between worlds and all the source of stuff, the kaiju. I mean, it's just, it's full of ideas. And I kind of love that how full of ideas that it is. And then we get to this interesting conversation where Keiko asks what happened to Billy and you know, the official answer that he tells her that Shaw tells her is he was on some Island and he went down swinging means for monarch not literally because i just wrote down in my notes a skull crawler ate him (laughs) ma'am she wouldn't know what a skull crawler is but you know she might be able to catch on through context because i'm going to be honest with you that's the interesting thing about this this kind of retcons a lot not kind of it does retcon a lot more significance to that character who came to a kind of an unceremonious end in Kong Skull Island I'm just saying but I, I this was in part of the other uh, part of this conversation and like the scenes here between Shaw and Keiko and you know basically the 50s characters they're all great they really are great and he points out and I do think this is an astute observation because she asks him well, you know, I mean she even says like saying 2015 still sounds strange you know like it's a science fiction concept and She asks him, how has the world changed? And he brings up a bunch of stuff related to technology and all that. But he points out that people are still the same. So, some things just never change. And I I really appreciate that. You know, people are still people. I've dealt with a lot of individuals who think that the world is worse now than it ever has been. And I just look at that and think to myself, you are either far too nostalgic... Or you're not a student of history. as I'm going to be honest with you. People are people regardless of the time frame. There is nothing new under the sun as King Solomon, well, who I assume is King Solomon has said, you know, said in Ecclesiastes. And then he, he mentions something about you know, going to get our kids. and I'm like, wait, is that metaphorical or literal? Because I am starting to have doubts again. That for a second I had doubts again. I was like, "Wait, is Lee Hiroshi's dad? That would be wild." And the whole widow thing is just a cover. Eh, I mean, mm, it's weird. Uh, I I I almost want that to be the case, but and then we get it's the same one, but we get another appearance by John Goodman in that video that he recorded in the first episode, which is kind of nice to see, and then, you know, Hiroshi's watching it, which I think foreshadows our sequel Beatty ending because this is Connections to Kong Skull Island. Hold on to your butts. We'll get there. Yes, it was a double reference. Thank you, Jimbo. Okay, fine. I get it. I get it. You have to remind me again. Only Danny can call you that. I understand. All right. And then... Tim, we go back to the surface, and Tim says, Monarch isn't the only game in town. And I'm like, is it Apex? Spoiler warning, it is Apex. Some more ties there. And this time to Godzilla versus Kong. Again, foreshadowing. And okay, yeah, let me see. And then I made a prediction. We're about halfway through the episode or so, and I made a prediction. It's like, okay, I bet the time distortions are going to make our characters that, you know, Keiko, Kate, Lee, and quote unquote, May who hardly talks this entire episode. Like, that poor actress just running around and making faces, and she's hardly ever talking, which is okay by me, because she's probably my least favorite character. I don't hate her, but she's definitely my least favorite character on the show. I was predicting they were going to end up in 2025, which is about when Godzilla vs. Kong is supposed to take place. You know, it's relatively present in the timeline for the MonsterVerse. And I was both right and wrong about that, but we will get to that. Like I said, I keep saying that a lot. And I did write something in here and this, and again, again, the show introduces this and then basically does nothing with it. But I did write, and if you wanna hate on me for even thinking this, go ahead and do it. I do think this is just a, this is a realistic thing to consider but i do wonder how keiko a woman from the mid-century most likely greatest generation i think she's old enough you know she was probably in her 30s i'm gonna say in the 50s she's she's greatest generation how she would respond to her granddaughter being a lesbian and it's never brought up and there's maybe the absolute slightest hints at something going on between Kate and quote unquote May, but not really. So, again, the introduction of her lesbianism feels like it was done to fill a quota more than anything else. And they haven't really done anything with it, you know, since they you know, since about episode five or seven or so, and I'm just confused with a lot of it, and, you know, why aren't we doing follow-ups with that? It seems like those were supposed to be some threads that would have to be resolved, but oh well, that's probably the most glaring problem I think I've had with this show, but we'll get to that once I get to my overall thoughts. But I do think that would be an interesting source of conflict because I don't think Keiko would necessarily be as accepting of that as a modern person would be. But, hey, what do I know other than history? Okay. And that's some stuff I already brought up. And then, okay, this is kind of cool. uh, Because he, uh, Lee, or Shaw, whatever, fell through another anomaly, another portal that just spontaneously generated, as opposed to going with his ship, and the ship didn't get caught, he found his old ship from 1962 that, as far as it was concerned, would have only been there for a week or two, and they're like, we're going to use this to get out of here, and, well, we find out that, and I should have brought this up, the signal that was part of the last week's cliffhanger, predictably, and this was brought up on the Monarch files as well, it did turn out to be Keiko, and... She was using it to get a signal out, and that's what eventually brought them here. And it's with the gamma simulator, and then they use the gamma simulator to basically jumpstart this, you know, this very again Burrosian at Earth's core sort of ship, so they can get back to the surface, which is clever. It takes a lot of work to move it over there, and Lee is finally in his element again. You know, he's in something that he flew before. It's from his era. He finally feels at home. He's in his natural habitat, and he gets to be a pilot. So that was pretty cool. But then, as you do, you give, you have to have complications for the escape plan, or else we don't have an exciting finale. Come on. We know how this stuff works. And so they were going to do the same thing that they did before. They were going to attract a Titan there with the Gamma Simulator, and then basically... Get it to open a portal, and then they basically write it into the portal. Well, the problem was the titan that it drew in was one that was already in Axis Mundi and was the Ion Dragon, and so he's not opening a portal for him, and he's just going after him because he's responding to the the, the gamma simulator, and that's not good. So you know, get, it, it unplugs the ship before it's fully charged, and so. Lee, because he's got a it's big dang hero time, he jumps out there to go plug it back in. And I'm getting flashbacks to Back to the Future, where Doc Brown is desperately trying to plug all of the st- that whole apparatus he had set up to get the lightning bolt on the clock tower <laughs> to supercharge the flux capacitor and send Marty back to 1985. Uh, there's even a shot or two that I think are taken straight from it. I'm just saying, which I appreciate it. It's a nice little homage. And, you know, it's a different enough situation that it's not a, I wouldn't call it a ripoff or anything. But then we get the big moment that we've all been waiting for. Godzilla is back. He was following the Gamma Simulator as well. And the Ion Dragon makes the stupidest move that you can possibly do, especially in a strange place like Axis Mundi. He picked a fight with Godzilla. I don't know if the if I if the Ion Dragon really thought he stood a chance, but he went after Godzilla, and it's a decent enough fight. In terms of you know as Monsterverse fights go, eh. There are worse, there are better. I put this, uh, you know, a good middle tier in terms of that. But yeah, I, I mean, the the Iron Dragon had some nice surprises. He, you know, he took a, an atomic breath to the face, which surprised me. Although he did interrupt it once because he can spit slime that Godzilla didn't. You know, here's slime in your eye. He, Godzilla didn't appreciate that. And like I said. He took a headshot from the from the breath. I thought he was dead. I like I thought he basically got his head scorched right the heck off and he it wasn't. And then Godzilla ended up throwing him aside and ripping off his wing and no, no he threw him into the 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 anomaly that open which opened the portal and you know, so that was cool. It's not the most mortal it's not as Mortal Kombat esque as all of the Monsterverse finishers have tended to be, but you know, it, was, it still fit with what the show generally does, uh, with what the franchise, I should say, generally does. And what's interesting is that there is a camera shot, as someone I saw online pointed out, where it seems that seems to indicate Godzilla is aware of the humans who are there, which is interesting. I was kind of expecting him to pick up the ship and throw it into the portal. I don't know how he would know to do that, or maybe he would carry it out and go back with them through it. Something like that, I was texting with my friend Eric of North Chapel, Eric Anderson, about it, and he, he was kind of you know, thinking, it's like, well, this doesn't belong here, and you pick it up and take it out. Might have been a little much if he did that. I mean, Godzilla's... We've already got enough of a heroic Godzilla coming in here, having him pick up the ship, and all that would have been a little much, but then we get to this moment, and I'm a little sad by this, but I guess we can't expect everybody in the cast to make it, and I guess... Out of everybody in the cast, he makes the most sense to do this with. But Shaw doesn't make it. Well, he, After he plugs the ship back in and charges it back up, he doesn't make it back into the ship. And then we get what I swear is it's Titanic all over again. It's all never let go, Jack. And, except in this case, he does it for her. He lets go so that they, all the rest of the characters, all the ladies can leave. So we... The, <laughs> You could cynically look at this and say the one male character here is getting killed off, but he's doing one of the most manly of heroic deeds. He is sacrificing himself so that the women can live. I'm cool with this. I'm totally cool with this. And then they go through the portal. They come up to the surface, skid to a halt, and then Hiroshi and Kentaro meet them. And Hiroshi gets to see his mother again. And it's very sweet. It's very endearing. He hasn't seen her since he was a little kid. And she looks exactly the same, which is just got to be crazy. What a what an insane... <laughs> this is what science fiction does, and I kind of love it. And he responds like a little boy. Calls her mama. And then his mother, who, who still pictures... Hiroshi, as a child never seen him as an adult before and he's arguably older than her now i think he actually is older than she is technically now and she says you got so big and then they hug and they have a good cry and it's a wonderful scene absolutely a wonderful scene Wonderful scene. And then we get our two big surprises. Well, actually, it's kind of three. Kind of three. Kind of three. Our twist endings, possible uh, sequel baiting. It's been two years. Not ten like I thought it would be. It's been two years. Two years have passed for everybody on the surface. Well, it's only been hours for everybody in Excess Mundi. Kind of expected that, but I thought it would be a longer time, so now it's 2017, so two years before King of the monsters 2019. and where are they? because they are not because you know, uh, the, the, the these portals don't work on the logic of you know uh, of you come out in the same spot where you left no, no they ended up in a completely different place. Where are they? Skull Island and then guess. Who gets the last shot of the season? Big old Kong. <laughs> Who's starting to look old. And there's a big storm going on. Tying into Godzilla versus Kong with the with, with the perpetual storm moving moving in. And obviously there's you know, we know that there are pathways to the Hollow Earth from there. Feels kind of appropriate to do that. If season one was focusing, you know, was using Godzilla as a big plot device, I expect that if there is a season two, it will be very Kong centric. That's the impression that I'm getting here, and it also feels appropriate because we saw stock footage of Kong from Kong Skull Island in the first episode. So this is so basically Kong bookends the show. You could make that argument, which. I think is pretty cool, pretty cool, so this episode, I would rank it as one of the better, actually, it might be one of the best episodes, to be honest, maybe even the best episode, you know, I mean, I, well, we'll get, I'll get to that in overall thoughts, but I thought this was fantastic, I, I really did, I've got some issues with it, but that's, It's more stuff related to the show as a whole as opposed to, you know, just being limited to this episode, which we will get into because I've got a a little bit of time and, you know, before Jimmy and I have to, you know, pack up and get the heck out of Ogasawara to go to Hong Kong and, you know, start our gallivanting and monster wrangling because apparently we are Kaiju cowboys you know. So I'm going to give you some overall thoughts right now on the show. So Monarch Legacy of Monsters, most likely season one. Is it amazing? Is it top tier television? I wouldn't go that far. Is it good? Yeah, it's, it's quite good. But it runs into the same issue that a lot of streaming series run into. Which is that most of the time, the beginning will be really strong. The ending will be really strong. And like a lot of Americans, it's kind of soft in the middle. Kind of squishy in the middle. And that was definitely an issue here. Because the middle episodes just felt a little bit disconnected. They were not as consistently good as I would say like the first 2 to 3 episodes and the last I would say two episodes for sure, maybe three, but definitely the last two were. And I do think that is a, a it's a bit of an issue there. But I, and I just I don't understand what it is. I thought the whole point of doing these uh, these shorter s- shorter season Streaming series, you know, 10, 12 episodes, maybe 13 at the most. I thought the whole point of doing that was to eliminate filler and to really focus in on a serialized story. And while the serialization in this is pretty good, it's just the middle episodes just kind of dropped the ball. And they were introducing things, especially about the characters that just seemed to kind of come out of nowhere like I mentioned before, the, you know, the Kate being a lesbian and "quote unquote" May and her potentially having a thing when we know she was in, you know, what when you could we could have safely assumed she was into guys because she dated Kentaro; they were in a relationship. So unless we were just supposed to assume that she's bisexual, but nobody told us that. I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's just really strange. And I didn't feel like those aspects were handled as well as they should have. I think they could have worked better if the whole point, because with Kate, and I've had some discussion with some friends about this, the whole point with Kate, what I thought was the most interesting thing about her character was the PTSD. And saying that, okay, she had a lesbian lover who died during the events of G-Day and that contributed to her PTSD, fine, that makes sense, go with that. Instead, you have her cheat on her girlfriend for no apparent reason to make her feel like she's no better than her dad, but that lasts for all of a minute? You know, I don't know, that part was just frustrating. It was just frustrating. And then they make it look like you know May and her have a thing going that they're attracted to each other, kind of turning Kentaro into a third wheel. And then that never gets brought up again ever. I think that was a missed source of conflict because it would have been interesting to see Kentaro call them out on that. You know, one Kate is his sister and two, "Quote unquote," May is his ex, and he could be like, "Well, when did that happen?" You know, that sort of a thing. He was like, "When did you suddenly get into girls?" You know, whatever on that. Like I said, it's a little frustrating that stuff like that gets introduced. And I don't know I've heard some people say that Shaw was acting pretty weird, you know, a little out of character in the middle. I think that gets explained better in the last couple of episodes, and it it seems more believable there. But the main thing that I think is the issue here, and this is not a hot take by any means because I've heard a lot of people, well, not even a lot, but I've heard several people bring this up, and I can definitely vouch for it. The 50s stuff, the flashback stuff, I should say, is overall the more interesting stuff. It's got more compelling characters, and I think that other, with the exception of Kurt Russell, who benefits from being a just a wonderful <laughs> Veteran actor, I do think the performances, the acting in the flashback portions is better overall. And the characters, I think, are more likable in those older sections. And you know, maybe it's the history buff in me, but I, I like seeing these, you know, seeing period pieces like that, you know, and you getting into the realm of recent history and things like that. I find it interesting going back to the Cold War era. You know, it's a it's a fascinating moment in the history of the world, and so I think that is the biggest problem. That it's well, I do think the show is good overall, and there are parts of it that I do think are truly excellent. I mean, the last episode, I really don't have any, any major issues with that. With the last episode, maybe even the last two episodes, really eh, more of the last episode than the last. than the penultimate episode if you listen to the monarch files podcast i was on but it's just that's what makes it frustrating because it is pretty uneven especially in the middle it you know it's solid at the beginning and it's really good at the end i just i don't understand what it is with streaming shows and how they keep falling into this trap and it's consistently falling into this trap it's not just limited to this show or to certain creators or studios or whatever. It is across the board. I talked about this with Common with Rider Black Sun. It fell into the same issue, although with Kamen Rider Black Sun, I think it was just overall the pacing was just pretty terrible, which is interesting because that, that was also another kind of legacy show <laughs> with a lot of flashbacks and things like that. And I think I've brought it up before in some of my previous coverage. But like I said... That, that's the major issue. I w- would I watch it again? I probably would. Would I recommend it to, to people? Yeah, I would. I would probably add the caveat, though, that you should at least watch Godzilla 2014 because that's the, the MonsterVerse movie where it has the most connections. Maybe Kong Skull Island. Maybe. Maybe. But definitely Godzilla 2014. That would be the only real required homework i would say for this show if you're gonna watch it the other monsterverse films there's mild references to them it hit or you know hints at events that are coming you know like a second g day well, i'm guessing it's supposed to be Ghidorah. you know but overall you know you could just watch one movie and dive into this i would be curious to find out if anybody who hasn't seen Any of the MonsterVerse movies, and they try to watch the show, could they get anything out of it? Could they enjoy it as much? I'd be curious. I would be curious. For those who are hardcore fans like myself, you're going to notice the nice Easter eggs in there and see some of the world building and some of the connective tissue being made. In a lot of ways, Monarch, the Legacy of Monsters, can be looked at as like what Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was originally supposed to be for the MCU. And then that all kind of came unglued later, but I don't know if Legacy like of Monsters is going to achieve the same level of notoriety or popularity. It's been consistently number one or number two whenever I've logged into Apple T V Plus, which I'm I'm guessing is a good sign. It's a really nice sign. So I get you know, it, p- clearly, people are watching it and they're getting numbers from it. So I would guess, and you know, also Apple TV Plus is not Netflix, so they're not going to fall into the same trap that Netflix seems to keep doing. It, the same pattern where even if they have a show that does well enough, they cancel it after one season. That's been happening a lot. But you know, Netflix has been in a lot of trouble in the last couple of years, and people have been kind of turning on it. So I don't know. so there there's an advantage there. I do think I do think switching networks might be prudent. I don't I don't even understand why it's Apple TV plus even has it. I would have thought that Max, formerly HBO Max would make more sense because they own legendary. well, Warner Brothers, I should say owns both legendary and HBO, but I mean, There's been that's been a bit of a mess as well. So basically, the entire Hollywood entertainment industry has not been doing very well in the last year. Makes me glad that for this show, I primarily cover Japanese media, or else who might have been a little tough to get uh, to have any content come out, unless I wanted to keep doing old stuff, which I do already. But regardless. Like I said, I'm not one to assign scores or anything you know, when talking about this stuff. I did when I was on the Monarch Files. I, if I was going to give some sort of a grading to this, I would probably put it at a B plus, maybe a low A-, minus because of just how inconsistent it was. It wasn't genuinely awful. Now, it wasn't bad enough to make me turn on the show, but... I like a lot of other people was kind of finding myself falling a bit out of love with it in those middle episodes. But if you can stay on the journey and handle those kind of weird middle episodes, I think you, you know, you got a solid 10 episode journey to go on with all, with two sets of characters in two different time periods. And it, you know, it's not heavy on monster action, and I think that's partly due, like I said, to budget constraints. But I'm glad that the creators here put a lot of work into making a, an excellent human story with good characters. You know, it's Proving, yet again, that human characters matter in kaiju movies, kaiju media. I don't care what anyone says. I will fight anyone on that assertion. Anytime, anywhere. Into the really? All right. Let's take this outside right now. Sayonara, Kaiju lovers, and to MIFV Max. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. Our executive producer is Damon Noise. If you want to be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you, so email us at monsterislandfilmvault at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter and our many colorful characters using the links in the show notes, which are on our website, MonsterRollumThumbVault.com. Don't forget to join our official Facebook group and Discord server, The Markalite Lounge. Our podcast logo was designed by Rebecca Hudgens. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Illustrations. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counter-Attack and The Opened Way by Koatani from Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can even support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. MIFV is a Moonlighting Ninjas media production and a proud member of Pod Nation. Sayonara!